from the World Economic Forum. I'm Beatrice DiCaro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. When many of us want to try to understand our complicated world, we tend to read the papers or pick up a history book. But how many of us seek to learn about our world through fiction? And what are we missing when we tune into the nightly news rather than a novel? This week, we're joined by best-selling Turkish-British author Elif Shefa. I first read Elif's book, Three Daughters of Eve, when we featured her in the book club in August 2018, and I've loved every one of her novels since then. She joined us to talk about her latest book, The Island of Missing Trees, a tender love story focused on two people from very different worlds who fall in love but shouldn't. The book came out in August and has already made many Book of the Year lists, including my own. Like much of Shafak's other work, it deals with identity, loss, and love, and plays out across generations. And it's all weaved together with her incredible empathy for the marginalized. Her novels touch off history, politics, war, migration, human rights, feminism, and eco-consciousness, to name just a few. So they always feel to me like no better place to learn about our world. We had plenty of questions for Elif, posted by members of the book club on Facebook. And I started by asking her about one of the most powerful themes in the island of missing trees. The idea of intergenerational trauma and inherited pain. You know, by the time you finish a novel, you're a different person. Something has shifted inside you. And this book taught me a lot, especially writing the character of Ada, uh, as we would pronounce her name in Turkish, Ada means island. So she's the daughter of a Greek Cypriot father and a Turkish Cypriot mother, born and bred in the UK. So she's very British, actually. Um, but at the same time, she's very much aware of the absences or the silences within the family. You know, the things that she's not being informed about. I think many people feel the, the presence of those silences, even if they might not have the knowledge of the past. Uh, to be honest, I'm very interested in these generational differences. I think the first generation, especially in immigrant families or families that come from complex backgrounds, the first generation are the ones who have experienced perhaps the biggest hardships, uh, the traumas, but they don't necessarily have a language or an outlet. You know, they don't know how to talk about these things. The second generation, especially if there has been a displacement, they are busy reorienting themselves, you know, building a new life, finding their feet, adopting, and therefore they're not interested in the past at all. They don't want to go back or look back. And it's usually the third or fourth generations, which means the youngest in the families who are asking the strongest questions about identity, their ancestors' journeys, you know, where they came from. So young people who are keen to grasp these old memories. And that to me is very interesting. And it's a pattern that I observe all across the world. And it's not easy to be young in a world such as ours. I think this is a time of uh, anxiety. There's a lot of existential angst. Also, we're living in a world that doesn't allow us to be multiple that doesn't allow us to celebrate our own pluralism, all of that adds uh, to the existential you know, angst that we're carrying, especially if you happen to come from a more complicated 
background. Uh, so I, I think sometimes I feel like there's a scream building up inside many people all around the world today. I very much feel this. Um, my father is Italian and my mother is British and French and I was raised in Hong Kong, so I can completely relate to feeling like an outsider. This sense of displacement for many second generation immigrants around the world is becoming an ever growing subject, which I guess leads me to my next question. Do you feel a social responsibility when writing your books? Do you feel there are certain topics you really want to bring up? Uh, I think, you know, as writers coming from wounded countries or wounded democracies, I should say, we don't have the luxury of being apolitical. We don't have the luxury of saying, you know, I don't want to talk about what's happening outside the window. I only want to talk about my own stories, my own imagination. When so much is happening outside the window, you need to speak up and you need to speak out. Also, I am a feminist and one of the many wonderful things that I have learned from past generations of, you know, feminist movement is that politics is not only about what, you know, the prime minister might have said or political parties have done today. It's more than that. It's much more subtle and complex and diffused than that. So wherever there's power, there's politics. The personal is also political. You might be writing about sexuality or gender violence um, or, or things like marriage and heartbreak. That too can be quite political, actually. So in that regard, there is politics in fiction. And I think we need to understand that. And we've entered an age in which all of us need to be more engaged, more involved citizens. But when I say politics, I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm not even referring to party politics, just about core issues like rule of law, freedom of speech, separation of powers, women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, minority rights. You know, there are these core issues that I think we all need to speak up about. Uh, and in that regard, I don't think authors can be silent, in an age, especially in an age such as ours. Many people turn to current affairs or news to help them understand the world around them. But do you think fiction can do that job too? Absolutely. And I believe more male readers should be reading fiction. Um, sometimes, you know, when readers, usually it's male readers who say this, uh, they say, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't read fiction because so much is happening in the world. I want to understand, you know, so I follow finance and technology and the latest developments maybe in neuroscience or politics, you know, refugee crisis, what's going on? I need to understand. And, and therefore, I don't have time for fiction. My wife reads fiction. My girlfriend reads fiction. And when I hear that, I really feel sad because I think we, the way we compartmentalize knowledge is quite problematic and it doesn't help us. It doesn't do us any good. Inside fiction, there is everything. Inside a novel, there is politics, there is technology, there is psychology, philosophy, you know, there is neuroscience and there's so much more. But perhaps most importantly, there's emotional intelligence and there's empathy. And I don't know a single person in this world who doesn't need emotional intelligence. You might be very good at what you're doing, but if you don't nurture your emotional intelligence, you will run into lots of problems when it comes to expressing your own emotions or making connections with the people around you, you know, healthy relationships. Also, I think I don't know a single person in this world who doesn't need empathy, whether we're dentists, you know, um, in the world of technology, students, teachers, artists, we all need emotional intelligence. We all need empathy. So the fiction, particularly, it opens up 
uh, different parts of our brain, and it helps us to to put ourselves in the shoes of another person for a few hours, for a few days. That is a very good humbling exercise for the human mind and the human soul. It's good because it gives us a cognitive flexibility that we might not otherwise get. So all I'm trying to say is I think it's healthier to read across the board. Let's read fiction and nonfiction, but let's not read always from within our comfort zone, you know, the same type of books again and again. Rather than that, I think multidisciplinary reading, eclectic reading lists that cover both fiction and nonfiction, that is when we learn the best. Feminism is something that is so important to you. Um, You've spoken recently about the role it could play in helping us overcome polarizations of all kinds and help foster cooperation. But um, how can respect for women's rights help bring about this better world? I think, first of all, we need to recognize the importance, the gravity of the issue, because sometimes people think, well, you need to worry about women's rights, maybe in Afghanistan. You need to worry about women's rights in some countries far away, but not necessarily uh, across the Western world or Western capitals. And I think that dualistic way of seeing the world is so problematic. And it doesn't hold water anymore, especially you know in the last year's We have seen more and more how fragile our democracies are, in fact. Democracy is a very delicate ecosystem of checks and balances. It's not a medal that once you earn, you can put it up on the wall and take it for granted. We have to nurture it. We have to worry about its future. And I think the ballot box in itself is not enough to sustain a democracy. You need democratic institutions and norms and human rights and women's rights in order to sustain a democracy. The opposite is also true. I think when democracy is lost, when countries start to slide backwards, the first things that will be taken away will be women's rights and minority rights. So as women, we have to become more passionate defenders of pluralistic you know, uh, democracy, where there is more equality, more inclusion, where people from all walks of life uh, can feel like their voices are being heard. All of that matters, I think. At a time like this, I believe we need more global sisterhood. We need more international connectivity. But also the kind of feminism that I long for is one that opens up conversations rather than retreats into tribes. So I'm longing for a more intersectional feminism that is also aware of those glass walls that separate us or the gaps that separate us when it comes to race, you know, racial inequality, ethnic, digital as well, regional. Class is a big issue that we never talk about. So be more aware of intersectional you know, inequalities, but at the same time, the kind of feminism that goes hand in hand with LGBTQ plus rights, and at the same time invites uh, and connects with men's um, you know, grievances and stories, especially. The reason why I say this is because I come from a very patriarchal country, which has taught me that, of course, under patriarchy, it's not easy to be a woman, not at all. But it's not easy to be a young man either. You know, especially if you don't conform to given descriptions of masculinity. As a young man, your life can be quite difficult. So we need to collaborate. We need to work together it's not a zero-sum game. We need to understand that a system that is based on the oppression of, of one group of people at the expense you know, of, of others, let's say, privilege, 
it, it won't make anyone happy in the long run. So I don't like these dualistic formulations, but I want a, a women's movement that opens up and brings people on board and that appreciates diversity. And I think it is a crucial moment for us to, 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 to believe in this and to push this forward. These are such massive issues. Um, democratic erosion is one side of it, but the environmental crisis is also a huge challenge. And for so many, it can be very overwhelming. How do we keep focus and how can people motivate themselves to do what needs to be done? Uh, but I think one thing we need to be very much aware of is the danger of apathy, is the danger of numbness. You know, we can talk about lots of different emotions that we're all struggling with. Sometimes we feel angry, frustrated, anxious, and it's quite normal. It's very human because there's so much uncertainty right now. And this is the first time in a long, long time when it feels like we're, we're not sure whether tomorrow will be better than yesterday. At a time like this, we struggle with anxiety. And I think that's very human. But if there's one emotion that really scares me, it is the lack of all emotions. So it's numbness. The moment we become almost frozen inside, you know, indifferent, desensitized, the moment we stop caring. And apathy is so dangerous because it gives us this notion, this feeling of helplessness. I mean, climate crisis is so huge. What can I do as an individual? You know, I'm just a human being, just a person. I feel bad. For the refugee crisis, I feel bad for lots of things, but what can I do? That kind of helplessness of millions and millions and millions of people creates a climate of apathy that I think is the most dangerous thing. So we need to understand that there's a lot we can do together if we connect, if we raise our voices um, in terms of you know changing, in terms of things being aware of inequalities, but connecting with nature understanding that we need to reorder our values and priorities. And this is a crucial moment to do, to do that. It's a time of reckoning. The pandemic has shown us, you know, what do we want in life? Do we want constantly more money, more profit, more greed, more haste? Uh, or is it actually the immaterial things in life that we realize that matter so much, like love, like family, like friendship, sisterhood, You know, just sitting under a tree, reading a book, things that you can't turn into numbers. So it is, it is a crucial moment for us to realize we're not the center of this earth. We're not the owners of this planet. We're just part of an eco ecosystem. And when we are destroying the ecosystem, we're destroying life. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a time for humility, but it's also a time to reorder our values and priorities. And for that, we need to connect with nature. The pandemic is also such an impactful event for many people. And I think some people had the impression that as a writer, you were probably very happy sitting indoors and getting your work done. Were you happy locked down and writing during the pandemic? Is that an accurate picture? Not at all. I mean, that's my experience is quite the opposite. Because we're all human beings, we are not disconnected from the world we're living in. And when people are dying, you know, in thousands, in, in, when so much is happening, uh, of course it affects you. And as a, as a writer, you ask yourself, what am I doing? You know, is this the right thing? Does it really matter if I find the perfect synonym? Does it really matter that I find this wonderful, let's say, constructed sentence when there's so much pain and sorrow Uh, happening everywhere. 
So you do go through lots of existential, I think, turbulence like everyone else. And you feel the need to reconnect. I wrote um, a little manifesto called How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division. That was, uh, in a way, my my answer to, to all the negative emotions that I was dealing with, you know, from anxiety to frustration to bewilderment, confusion. But it helps. I think we should be able to talk about these things. Uh, we need to understand that a little bit of pessimism is actually not a bad thing. I have a positive view on pessimism. But of course, too much pessimism pulls us down, so we need a bit of optimism as well. So where do we find this? That manifesto talks about both the need for pessimism and the need for optimism at a moment like this. So are you hopeful about our future? I mean, I, I think it's it's very difficult to be completely hopeful um, or too, too optimistic. And maybe it's not necessary to be too optimistic all the time. I think there was extreme optimism in early uh, 2000s, late 1990s. And it also brought a sense of complacency because people thought, thanks to the proliferation of digital technologies, we were going to see democracy everywhere, that if you spread information, people would become informed citizens. And as informed citizens, they would always make the right choices. You know, there was this extreme confidence in and optimism about particularly technology. Fast forward, I think we've entered the age of pessimism. So I think none of them is healthy. But rather than that, I would, you know, I would be a little bit more pessimistic in my analysis because that's the kind of time we're living in. But we also need hope. And for hope, we need to connect when I hear your story, when someone else hears my story, you know, or, or, the, or, the, or the stories that we imagine, they, they're all contributing. If you take arts and culture and literature away, I think people become more and more polarized. Uh, and already we live in a world in which empathy levels are very low. Imagine that's going even lower. That kind of a world will be a much harder, darker place to live in. I guess I make a distinction between information, knowledge, and wisdom. I think we're living in a, in a world in which we're bombarded by information. There's too much information, but very little knowledge and even less wisdom. And I think we need to change this ratio. Let's deal with less information because the, pro the truth is we don't process it. It doesn't stay with us. You know, We don't absorb it. We just scroll up and down. But let's spend more time building up our knowledge and hopefully aiming for wisdom. For knowledge, we need books. We need to slow down. We need to nurture an inner garden. We need to become better listeners, you know? Uh, and ho hopefully for wisdom, we need to bring the mind and the heart together. For that, we need empathy and emotional intelligence. So to change our focus and our priorities seems to me like an important time. And, and for that, I think books are incredibly important. That was author Elif Shafak. I wholeheartedly recommend her latest novel, The Island of Missing Trees. Big thanks to Elif for joining us on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. Tune in next time to hear from geopolitics and globalization expert Parag Kanna. Please subscribe to this podcast and best of all, leave us a review. Don't forget to join our book club on Facebook, which is coming up to 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, please join the Forums Podcast Club, also on Facebook. 
And of course, please search out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Book Club podcast was presented by me, Beatrice DiCaro. Production was with Gareth Nolan. And thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon. But for now, thank you for listening and goodbye.